As we bid farewell to 2021, a year with all its ups and downs, we're ready for the promise of a new year. This is Green Sense. I'm Robert Colangelo, where we bring you eco-innovations. And someone who's been tracking them for decades is practical futurist Michael Rogers. He's a futurist, speaker, author, journalist, and the New York Times futurist in residence. Michael, welcome back to Green Sense. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, you're just uh, so engaging and entertaining. Uh, so let's get right into it. Uh, let's start out with vaccines. Uh, even though they came out in 2020, this was the year that they went out to most of the people. What kinds of innovations will mRNA, that's messenger RNA vaccines, and research lead to, in your opinion? Well, I think it's going to be very big. I mean, it's interesting. RNA has been sort of the neglected stepchild in our study of molecular genetics for years and years. And all of a sudden, beginning 10 or 15 years ago, people started to do more research saying, there's got to be something we can do with this. And COVID totally forced the whole thing you know, into operation very quickly, even though a lot of people were experimenting with it. And mRNA worked better, I think, than anyone expected. The, uh, I mean, these vaccines were literally the basics of them were put together in a matter of weeks uh, and were 90, 95% efficient. So I see two possible things coming out of this. Um, one, specifically in terms of, of, of pandemics, is you know, if we're smart as a species, with mRNA and a lot of the other tools that we have now, this could be our last pandemic. Uh, it's really quite easy to see a system that would be sort of global scanning of uh, health records that looks probably using AI for any sort of unusual morbidities or mortalities, would flag those. Uh, you'd have a small team that would go in and investigate. Uh, one interesting project is to actually genotype uh, all of the mammalian viruses, the viruses that cross over in the wild. And it would cost, you know, maybe half a billion dollars to do that. It could be done though. And the key thing about this COVID pandemic is that now the nations of the world understand how expensive a pandemic is. So it would be cheaper to build this amazing sort of remote earth monitoring health system that could detect these outbreaks, move in right away, and then with mRNA, turn out a vaccine in a matter of weeks. So we could be in our last pandemic. Well, I like your vision of the future. We don't hear so much of a positive uh, a foresight like that. So that's very good. As you know, I'm in agriculture. That's how we met, was at the Bayer Crop Science event, oh, probably right. four or five years ago. Um, there's talk about being able to grow vaccines in plants by attaching the vaccine to the plant protein. How, how real is that? And when do you see that being a possibility? I think that's probably real. Uh, I'm not positive, though, what the economics of that would be, uh, and also the functionality in Right now, uh, a lot of the mRNA material is just essentially done through uh, a kind of laboratory cloning. Uh, the extent to which we would need to attach to plants, not completely clear to me, but it's certainly the case that uh, we're getting more and more experience with 
with moving genes into plants that give them really pretty unusual characteristics. So I would say I would put that on the not impossible side. It's really an economic question. Great answer. Well, Elon Musk uh, has been uh, voted as Time's Man of the Year. Uh, Jeff Bezos flew William Shatner <laughs> and other notable people to the edge of space. And Richard Branson has Virgin Galactic. Uh, did anyone foresee billionaires leading the way on space travel? That's a good question. Um, I've, uh, I've seen, uh, there, of course, there's a classic Ray Bradbury short story in which people go back in time, I think. And it's a tour that only very experienced rich people can afford. So the billionaire, I think it says more about sort of the state of our planet and its economy than it does about the billionaires. The fact that people have enough money that they want to do this. Uh, occasionally one hears, I think Elon Musk say, you know, we are running out of room on this planet. Uh, you know, we really need to be able to go colonize somewhere else, which to me is, is really pretty insane. <laughs> this was a perfectly nice planet before we uh, sort of began to wreck it. And uh, why don't we terraform Earth uh, instead of terraforming Mars? And I honestly think, to be serious for a moment, as we move into the later part of this decade and a younger generation becomes, comes into political power, there's more of a focus on climate change, sustainability. We're going to take a look at the cost of putting humans in space and take a second thought about that because humans are really fragile. It is so expensive to send us up there and keep us alive. And robotic technology is getting better and better and better. So you've got to have a really good reason as we look out towards the end of the decade to spend a fortune to keep a human alive out there when we could send a full VR outfit there, VR equipped robot that literally hundreds of scientists around the world could log on and lope along the plains of Mars or swim through the oceans of Venus. And that's my vision for the future. And if a few humans want to tag along, that's fine. But hopefully by then we have a system where, to be slightly political, we don't actually have billionaires anymore because we, they spent all their money fixing the planet for us. Well, uh, <laughs> I like your terraforming idea. We're losing so much arable uh, soil that uh, why not uh, terraform a lot of these desert and uh, areas that were once uh, prolific, uh, life-giving. Right. Great idea. Well, let's talk about Blue Origin. It's not saying how much a ticket into space would go for, uh, but uh, do you think we are ever going to see uh, space travel for the average uh, person? I don't think we'll see that for a long time to come. As I said, it's, you know, it's a very hostile environment and it's hard to protect people. Uh, the, uh, the use of that sort of orbital space, that's going to become more and more important. It's going to be chock full of every kind of satellite you can think of doing everything from, of course, remote sensing to internet connections. It's going to be crowded up there. Uh, I have a feeling that our species focus for the next 20 or 30 years will be making that sort of that next orbital layer really important and crucial to you know, the operation of life on Earth. And the idea of putting money into tourism uh, is, is not going to make that much sense. Uh, 
you know, the, the, the second piece is, you know, why would you in the first place be interested in, for example, setting up a Mars colony? Um, we've always set up colonies in the past to, to make money, basically, to get gold or you know, more land or human beings in the most tragic cases. Uh, there's not a whole lot for us out there. So, so once again, as a kid who grew up in the 60s and 70s, fascinated by space travel, I find that I'm looking at it now with, with new eyes, mostly because of the state of the planet we're on. Well, that's a great question to ask why. And uh, a lot of people aren't asking that. So I, again, you, I love to hear your perspective. Uh, 2021, uh, let's go back down to earth, was a year many people started going back to work. Uh, then it's sort of to the workplace. Uh, then it reversed. <laughs> now right. we're sort of in this limbo of uh, semi-workplace, semi-home. Uh, what workplace trends do you, do you foresee? It. It seems to me that we're going to end up with hybrid workplaces work so that part of the time we are at home uh, or wherever we prefer to work on our own. And once in a while, we go into the central office. Because one thing that we really not gotten good at, uh, and, and I should back up by saying we should understand that, that the collaboration software, the work software we have now was pitifully unready for what happened. COVID pushed us five years into the future in many ways. Technology wasn't ready, we weren't ready, and that really applies to the workplace. But that also means that all the VCs now see that there's you know, a lot, lot of possible profit to be made in workplace collaboration software. So it's gonna get better and better. High definition screens that take up half the wall, uh, really good augmented reality glasses, but still, there's not going to be a substitute for having people in the same physical space. I think there is a collaboration that goes on when humans are in the same space that we can't really duplicate online. So I think ultimately we may end up in the situation where corporate headquarters is in the big city. Uh, people who want to raise families and have a little green space are out in the countryside, maybe a suburb, maybe even a little further out. And part of the time you work at home, part of the time you go into a telepresence center, maybe a redone shopping mall, because we're going to have some empty shopping malls coming up that has been set up so that you have a really rich, robust, full walls covered with screens connection to the home office. And you work there sometimes. And then once in a while, you go all the way into the big city for some kind of collaborative effort. So I think that's kind of the way that it will work out. Uh, a lot of fractional office space. And what's interesting is I really re learned recently, China has started to turn some of its old shopping malls into exactly that sort of thing. China, of course, took to uh, online shopping even more quickly than we did. And so they already have some shopping malls sitting around empty. So that's the way I see the future. You know, sometimes I joke that in the future, I think there's going to be a, a trivia contest, maybe 50 years from now, um, where one of the questions is, what was a rush hour? And the kids will go, huh, rush hour, haven't, haven't heard of that. And we'll explain to them what a rush hour is, and they'll say, wait a minute, everybody woke up at the same time, 
got in their cars at the same time and drove in the same direction. That's nuts. And I think we may have that same sort of attitude when we really look at where we need to be and where we do our best work. There are so many ramifications to what you just said to the economy uh, with people staying at home, they spend less, they, they dress less, they eat less, less gas. So, uh, and just the, uh, the use of property will change, as you said, abandoned malls, maybe the commercial uh, office space is not as occupied. Wow, lots of yeah. ramifications from that, but the, you said a lot of uh, poignant things, probably the best. Who would not want to give up all that traffic and congestion? <laughs> so true, so true. <laughs> so, well, let's move on to another topic. Uh, Silicon Valley has been the hub of innovation and investment for decades. It's even got the name of a popular HBO series. And uh, you wrote a novel called Silicon Valley uh, right. back in 1982. Last we spoke, you had a new novel on the way. Can you tell us more? I'm working on um, a utopian novel in the sort of great tradition of utopias that have been written since Plato's Republic. Um, and uh, generally, you know, some mysterious way we get a chance to see a different society um, that has really evolved in a very healthy way. Usually in the old utopias in the 16th and 17th century, it was some sailor who came back and he discovered an island. No one knew what was there and there was a perfect sort of community on it. Um, now we do time travel. And so my, uh, my novel sort of is called Email from the Future. And it's essentially a person who's 74 years old in the year 2084 describing the century that he's lived through. So he's 10 years old right now. And uh, my question is, you know, what if we used all the tools we have right now um, and did all the right things? What would the world look like out towards the end of the century? Because there's a lot that we could do in a very intelligent way to repair the planet, to create much healthier living circumstances for people. So that's what I'm focusing on trying to get across is this utopian idea. Uh, the interesting thing is that utopias were big popular, you know, kinds of novels uh, for, it was probably one of the oldest novel genres there is, uh, but they've sort of fallen into disuse in the last 50 or 60 years. And, dystopia has become the most common form. So uh, I'm swimming against the current, uh, but uh, it feels really good if you're a futurist to be optimistic once in a while. <laughs> uh, I think you'll find a lot of uh, support there. And, and how, when will we be able to read it? Uh, it should be out in the uh, end of January, early February. Well, uh, I'll look forward to it and, and keep up with the hard work. Well, I've got a great follow-up question here is uh, we're at a point where we have problems that need to be solved globally. They can no longer be solved locally or nationally. Uh, the two most pressing issues that come to mind are climate change and this pandemic. Um, both require uniform global compliance if we're really going to solve the problems completely. Uh, you can't have one country with low emissions and the other one with high emissions, one with low vaccination rates, one with high. We need complete solutions. So it seems like technology is not the issue. As you said, we have great technology. The problem is political systems. 
You know, mm-hmm. the isms don't work. Uh, communism, socialism, capitalism, they all seem to be lagging behind. What's your prognostication for the future when it comes to political systems and governments? How are they going to start to move at the fast pace that society is changing? That's a great and complicated question. I think <laughs> I saved it for last. <laughs> I think one thing that we will see is that governments will adopt uh, a much more digital technology. Uh, that will be along the lines of advanced countries like Estonia, where much of civil society is based on firm identification cards, digital cards that sort of open up the virtual world to you. So right now, governments just in general are very, very backward in terms of their technology, and that will help a lot going forward. Secondly, I think that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's another generation coming along, Gen Z, which uh, you know now that the millennials have actually gotten old, uh, Gen Z is a very interesting development because it's going to be the largest generation in the world in history. Uh, it'll be as big as the millennials here in the United States. And it is the most international. I mean, I've heard people suggest that, you know, a 15 year old in St. Louis has more in common culturally with a 15 year old in South Korea uh, than she does with someone who lives next door to her. Hmm. Um, It's a really global generation. And that gives me some hope that there is a, you know, out there a little more interconnectivity. The second piece that gives me hope is that women are becoming, you know, much more situated in politics. We have a long way to go, but they are moving into the political realm. And honestly, if one is to characterize the difference between a purely female and purely male approach to problems, I would say that the female approach, which tends to involve collaboration and cooperation is the one we need right now. And it's interesting to see that in Gen Z, the real leaders now pretty much in the, in the climate crisis are young women. So oddly, I think that the answer to your question comes down first of all to people and to spirit and that, uh, that that's what we have to really work on initially. And then the technology and the systems will, will fall into place after that. Michael, I hope your vision is correct. Uh, we'd <laughs> like to all see a bright future. I think we're tired of a dystopian future. And I can't tell you how much I look forward to speaking with you uh, as, as rarely as we do. So thank you so much uh, for coming on the show and sharing your insights. I wish uh, you and your family happy holidays. And uh, whenever you're ready, uh, please give us a call. We're always happy to have you back on. That's great. Thank you very much. I always enjoy our conversations and your questions, even the hard ones. (laughs) (laughs) That's Practical Futurist, Michael Rogers. Learn more about him at michaelrogers.com. I'm Robert Colangelo. This is GreenSense. Subscribe to our podcast at greensensefarms.com. And listen for the GreenSense Minute on Thursdays and Saturdays on News Radio 105.9, WBBM Chicago.